We're continuing our series through the book of Matthew this morning in Matthew chapter 2. To the nations and prophecies fulfilled. To the nations and prophecies fulfilled. I want to open this morning from a poem in the Wells of Living Water, 1948. Here's a mystery to ponder. Let thy soul be hushed with wonder. In a manger, mid the plunder, God in flesh, a babe doth lie. God incarnate, sweetly sleeping, prophecies of ages keeping. Yet no one to give him greeting, coming in the flesh to die. It is a mystery to ponder, God in flesh, Jesus incarnate deity is also a mystery to ponder that God would save sinners like you and me. In Matthew chapter 2, we see that God draws people to himself, specifically the Magi, or you may know them as the wise men. You might know them by the three kings. But So in our first time together, our first uh, part of our time, we will look at who these men are and how they came to worship King Jesus, and what their story demonstrates about our God. Next, we will ponder on the mystery, as the poem says, God incarnate, sweetly sleeping, prophecies of ages keeping. By looking at how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies in Matthew chapter 2. So we have two main parts today, the story of the Magi, or the wise men, that shows that God is the Savior of all nations. And in the second, we'll see Old Testament prophecies that give us reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We'll look at four prophecies in Matthew chapter 2. The first, how Jesus is the humble shepherd king born in Bethlehem. The humble shepherd king born in Bethlehem. The second, we'll see how Jesus is the faithful Savior out of Egypt, the faithful Savior out of Egypt. And then the third, we will see weeping in spiritual exile, our need for salvation. Weeping in spiritual exile, the need for salvation. And then fourth, how Jesus is the Nazarene, the promised branch, the suffering servant. The Nazarene, the promised branch, the suffering servant. So starting with the story of the Magi, the wise men, in Matthew 2. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So who were these men from the east? The only other time this word Magi is used in the New Testament is Acts 13.6. You can turn there if you like. Acts 13.6 will be there just for a second. Acts 13, 6, we see Barnabas and Saul. They had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. They came upon a certain magician, a magi, same word. Some translations call him a sorcerer. He is a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So the magi, the wise man in Acts 13, is, is translated as magician. And he sought to turn others away from the faith in Jesus. Look at verse 8, Acts 13, 8. 
But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Because of this, look at what Paul calls him in verse 10. He says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you stop, not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Pretty harsh criticism, but is warranted. So this is the only other time in the New Testament another wise man or magi is mentioned. And this guy does not have a good reputation. So it is likely that when the first readers of Matthew's gospel came into contact with these magi, they would have viewed him, viewed them as the magician, as a magician like mentioned in Acts, of not a very good reputation at all. So look back in Matthew 2, 1. We'll see, while this magi in Acts 13 rejected Jesus and sought to turn others away from the faith, the magi in Matthew sought others so they could find Jesus and worship him. Look in verse 2 of Matthew, chapter 2. For it says, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. So while the Magi in Matthew respond differently to Jesus than the Magi in Acts, it is likely the Magi in Matthew were also magicians. But unlike the magician who rejects Jesus and is called a son of the devil... In Acts, the magicians in Matthew bow down before King Jesus, acting properly as children of God. Now, Matthew does not elaborate on the nature of their faith, but as we will see throughout the book of Matthew, bowing down before Jesus is a sign of worship, a sign of true followers of Jesus. So even though these magi bowed down to worship King Jesus, they did not grow up in the Jewish synagogue. For these magicians were the kind of magicians that were probably priests, not from the Jewish synagogue, but from another religion. For they came from the East, and they were likely experts in the interpretation of stars, known as astrology. For the text mentions that they came from the East, and verse 2 notes that they saw his star. This idea that they came from a pagan religion, from another religion, from the East, is also present in the Old Testament. When the only instance the term magi is used in the Old Testament is in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2. We'll just be here for a second, but Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, shows the same things that Acts does, that these magi do not have a good reputation. We see here in Daniel 2, 2, the king, that is, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, that's the same word that we have for magi, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So here the English Standard Version and many others, the term magi is translated as enchanters. Others, like the King James, translates it as astrologers study of stars. So this is the same word used to describe the men in Matthew chapter 2. And here these men, these enchanters, astrologers, are in the group of a pagan king's magicians and sorcerers that will attempt to interpret the king's dreams. And they do so unsuccessfully, by the way. So looking back in Matthew chapter 2, 
So while the Magi and Matthew are wise, they're wise men in a sense, because they left their home and presumably the king of the east to worship the king, the true king, king of the Jews, we should not miss the fact that Matthew is showing us that God can save anyone, even magicians, even sorcerers from other religions. God can draw anyone to himself. Anyone, no matter the background, no matter the terribleness. I think I made that word up, but I think I like it. The terribleness of their sin. This is the good news and grace of the God of the Bible. That God can draw anyone. He can save anyone. He seeks and saves the worst of sinners. He gives them a new life, a life of purpose, as a, a life as a child of God. For God is gracious and desires all people to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 Now let's look at how God can miraculously draw people to himself. In verse 7, Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure, treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So Herod tells them that the king of the Jews is to be born in Bethlehem. And we'll get into that Old Testament prophecy in just a second. But he lies to them and tells them that he wants to worship the king. He, did, in fact, did not. Look in verse 9, specifically. We see that the star marked the spot of King Jesus. The use of the star to lead the Magi to the king is miraculous. And many have speculated on how this was possible, seeking to explain it from natural phenomenon. Some have tried to explain it that it was a comet or a planetary conjunction like Jupiter and Saturn lining up perfectly or a supernova. While Matthew does not elaborate on the nature of this star, it does not seem to be an explainable natural phenomenon. For verse 9 speaks of a star rising before them and stopping over a particular place. This was truly a miraculous sign. This miraculous event also occurred in history. It is historically reliable. And of all the many reasons that in my research this week, one of the most convincing to me was from this commentator. He says, it is unlikely that a church which taught against astrology and magic would have embarrassed itself by inventing such a story. In other words, it would be very unlikely for Jesus' followers to have made up this account because it includes people finding the Messiah through the interpretation of stars, following the stars, in which the early church would condemn such practices. As followers of Christ, we are not to trust in the signs and interpretations of the stars, like many other religions. 
We are to trust and follow God's word, the scriptures. So, with that said, what's going on here then with the Magi following the star? It seems like it is God's miraculous sign to lead people to the Messiah. And as one commentator points out, he does so in a manner tailored to their circumstance. For they were likely studying stars in another religion, as we talked about before. But God used that, used their other religion to show them the true king. Now, hear me, this is not condoning or approving other religions. But God can save anyone and can lead anyone to the truth in a miraculous way. It's kind of like it reminded me of Paul when Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, and he points the people in Athens to God by using their own beliefs. Acts 17, 23, Paul says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so Paul uses something from their religion in Athens and says, what you worship as an unknown, unknown God, I'm here to show you to the truth, the true God. And so maybe some of you today have a story like the Magi, where you were doing your own thing, far from the Lord, not even looking for him, actually looking maybe for something else, but through a strange, miraculous series of circumstances, God led you to the truth. That's what we see here with the Magi. Also look back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. The Magi, when they were there, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, for they arrived after their long journey to worship the King of Kings. In verse 11, they fell down and worshipped Him. Then confirming that Jesus is the King, they offered Him gifts worthy of a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This act of worship and the giving of gifts shows the great faith of these magi. For all that we know about them is that they believed in this star that they were following, that they would lead them to the king. And we'll see how they heard the prophecy of Micah 5.2, which we'll get to in a second. Jesus hadn't performed any miracles at this point. The magi already believed and worshipped. We today have the whole New Testament Describing from four perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the miracles, the teachings, the death and resurrection of our Lord, along with the other New Testament writings that expound on Jesus' life and teachings. But we often are like, hmm, is that it? Is that all the evidence we got? But it, all it took for these magi was the sign of a star. And they fell down and worshipped. So for us today... Don't miss the signs that Jesus is God. He is the King of kings. Don't be like many in Jesus' time, who although they knew the Old Testament, they still rejected their king. Don't think just because you have been coming to church your whole life, or that you know the Bible frontwards and backwards, that you're saved. Salvation comes through believing and worshiping in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King. So don't miss the signs of the Old Testament prophecies. Don't brush them off and don't take them for granted. And that leads us into our second part today, Old Testament prophecies in Matthew chapter 2. The first one, 
the humble shepherd king born in Bethlehem. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. While the Magi follow the star, it only brings them so far until they need to stop and ask for directions. And of all people to ask, they ask the wrong guy. They should have asked anybody else. King Herod, they ask him, he, they, he, the Magi say, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So they looked to the Old Testament scriptures to see where the Messiah King were to be born. And the scribes turned to, Mac, to Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2, which speaks of a ruler coming from Bethlehem. And Micah made this prophecy over 700 years before the time of Jesus. And I want us to look at something interesting comparing Micah 5.2 and Matthew 2.6. Micah 5.2 compared with Matthew 2.6. So Micah says, if you turn there in the Old Testament, you'll read, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem is too little to be where the ruler could be from. You would think it would be from a great city, but it's from Bethlehem, a too little town of insignificance. But look at what Matthew 2.6 says. O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least. You're not the least. You're not too small. So what's going on here? There's, there's two possibilities. The first, the most common by commentators, is that while Bethlehem may be small and unimportant in comparison, it will become the most important, for it will be the birthplace of the king. As one commentator notes, Bethlehem was insignificant by worldly standards. But once it was graced with the birth of the Messiah, it was no longer insignificant, at least not by God's standards. And that makes sense, right? Another possibility that could go along with this is if you look at the context of Matthew 2.6, who's saying this prophecy? It's the scribes and the priests, right? And as we look through the book of Matthew, the scribes and the priests are not the best characters in the Gospels. They're often at odds with Jesus and have bad theology most of the time. But here we see they do get it right. They do turn to Micah 5, 2 correctly that there will be a king coming from Bethlehem. But what I think may be going on is that the scribes cannot imagine the birthplace of the king being called too little or insignificant. So they read Micah 5.2, and they see where this king should be coming from Bethlehem, but they change it to say, Bethlehem's not too small. But that's the way God works, right? Jesus was born in a place that was insignificant, and that was smaller than other tribes. It was a town of no respect. And this is how God works. He takes what is least of all and makes it great. Those who are servants and are, are the greatest in God's kingdom, as we will see as a main theme throughout Matthew. 
Also, additionally, in Micah 5, 2, it describes this future ruler whose goings out are from aforetime, from ancient times, or one translation, from days of eternity is where this ruler is coming from. And one commentator points out that this suggests a king who is more than a mere human. For Jesus existed from eternity past. He was there at creation. And now in Matthew 2, 6, he enters into his creation. Again, as the poem says, ponder the mystery of God incarnate, sweetly sleeping prophecies of ages keeping. So Jesus, just like King David before him, was born in the city of Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16, 4. Likewise, Matthew points out that Jesus will be a shepherd of his people, just like David was a shepherd over Israel, 2 Samuel 5, 2. And specifically, in the context of Micah, Micah 5, 2, we see Micah 5, 4 describes the Messiah as a shepherd, Micah 5, 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus then is the shepherd king, leading, protecting his flock. We can trust in this king. He is our great shepherd. Jesus also is the humble king, born in the small, insignificant town of Bethlehem born to be a servant of all, and again, like the poem says, coming in the flesh to die. Now let's turn to our second Old Testament prophecy. Jesus, the faithful Savior out of Egypt. He is the faithful Savior out of Egypt. This occurs in Matthew 2, 15. Matthew 2, 15. For they had to flee to escape Herod's wrath, and it says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son, which comes from Hosea 11.1. 1. Hosea 11.1 1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So it's pointing to the Exodus account of Israel, where Israel's brought out of Egypt. And in that time... God saved his people from the slavery of Egypt. But throughout the Old Testament, if you remember, that the people of Israel, even though they are free from the slavery of Egypt, they are not free from their slavery of sin. Because over and over again, the people return to their idolatry, return to their sin, forsake their God. So here, we see Jesus coming not to save his people from Egypt, but he's coming to save them from their sins. So Jesus coming from Egypt also points to, as one commentator points out, how Jesus will prove faithful where the nation of Israel had been faithless. This will be especially clear once we get to Matthew 4 in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So thus we see how coming out of Egypt pictures Jesus as the faithful and holy Savior. We can trust in Him today as our Savior. And again, ponder the mystery of God incarnate, sweetly sleeping, prophecies of ages keeping. So we have seen how Jesus' birth in Bethlehem predicts Old Testament prophecy in Micah, and His flight to Egypt fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in Hosea. Now we will look at another Old Testament prophecy in verse 16 from Jeremiah. 
And this prophecy is about the weeping in spiritual exile, our need for salvation. Weeping in spiritual exile, our need for salvation. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained by the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So this prophecy is from Jeremiah 31, 15. And as one commentator points out, almost all of Jeremiah 31 describes the future days of God's new covenant with his people, when he will restore them to their land, forgive their sins, bless them with peace and prosperity. But tucked into these wonderful promises of Jeremiah 31 is verse 15, the lone verse in this chapter that reflects the current grief surrounding the Assyrian and Babylonian exile. So even though Israel, at the time of Jesus, have been out of exile, they're living in the promised land, they are still in spiritual exile. For their king attempted to kill the king of kings. And just like the exiles in Jeremiah 31, 15, many sons of Israel were killed. So while Jesus is bringing the new covenant, the promise of life and salvation from sin, Matthew is showing us the need for this salvation and the state of Israel at Jesus' time by quoting Jeremiah 31, 15. But the good news, even in Jeremiah 31, 15, comes right after that is verse 16. There's words of hope. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from their land of the enemy there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jesus is bringing this hope. He's bringing salvation from sin, its consequences and effects. As one commentator writes, things may look hopeless, but God has a plan. And another writes, suffering, rejection, and even death are never God's final word for either Christ or his disciples but they often precede exaltation. So suffering, rejection, and even death may often precede exaltation. And one last thing to point out in this passage before we go to our last Old Testament prophecy is that this passage is very similar to an event in the life of Moses in which Pharaoh sought to kill the male children of the Hebrews, but Moses was saved. Similarly, Herod killed the male children, but Jesus was saved. And look specifically at Matthew 2.20, which echoes the same exact language in Exodus 4.19, because both say that those who sought your life are dead, thus picturing Jesus as the new and better Moses, who did not come to save Israel from the slavery of Egypt, like we've already mentioned, but he came to save them from their spiritual exile and sin. So once again, we see, we ponder the mystery of God incarnate, sweetly sleeping, prophecies of ages keeping. So we turn to our last prophecy, 
Matthew 2.23. It may be the most interesting prophecy of all. It says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And there's books and dissertations written on this one verse, and I did not read them all, but I skimmed some of them. <laughs> in the previous prophecies, Matthew says they were from the prophet, singular, Matthew 2.5, by the prophet, singular, 2.15, by the prophet, singular, Jeremiah 2.17. But here, in 2.23, the prophecy is from the prophets, plural, now, which prophecies is Matthew referring? It is most likely he is referring to multiple prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Let's look at the clearest one, I think, is in Isaiah 11.1. 1. Isaiah 11.1, 1, before we read it, I want, it's important to know that the city of Nazareth, where he will live, likely meant branch place, branch place. So if you were from Nazareth, you'd be called a Nazarene, and you could be called a branch person. So if Jesus is the branch, we should keep that in mind when we read about the descendant of David, as one commentator writes about Isaiah 11.1, 1, this descendant of David would be empowered by the Spirit to rule wisely and justly and to bring salvation to Judah. So Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Jesus is the branch. He is the promised son of David, the ultimate king, born in the town of David, Bethlehem. And even in Jesus' hometown, the branch place points to Jesus as the promised branch, the son of David in the Old Testament. Since Matthew says that this prophecy is from multiple prophets, he might be also referring to that he's not quoting one text directly, but is rather summing up a theme found in several prophetic texts. So this theme of the messianic branch or plant is connected also to Isaiah 53 which depicts the Messiah as a suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men might hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So this idea of the suffering and lowly status of the Messiah being born in a place like Nazareth is confirmed how, by how people in Jesus' time thought of Nazareth. We see in John 1.46, Nathaniel said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. This invitation is for us today as well. Come and see. Come and see who this Jesus is. So while Jesus is the King of kings, deserving of worship of all nations, such as the Magi coming from the east, brought him kingly gifts, Jesus also came to earth in the form of a servant. 
He lived in a city of little respect. He died a sinner's death. For Jesus is the suffering servant. As Isaiah 53, 4 goes on to depict. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So again, ponder the mystery of God incarnate, sweetly sleeping, prophecies of ages keeping. So we've seen how the story of the Magi, the wise men, shows that God is the Savior of all peoples. He uses miraculous means to draw people to himself. We saw how Old Testament prophecies give us reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah with the four prophecies in Matthew chapter 2. He is the humble shepherd king of Bethlehem. He is the faithful savior out of Egypt. We saw how the weeping points to spiritual exile, our need for salvation, and how Jesus is the Nazarene, the promised branch, and the suffering servant. So I want us to close our time by rereading this poem once again. Here is a mystery to ponder. Let thy soul be hushed with wonder. In a manger, mid the plunder, God in flesh, a babe doth lie. God incarnate, sweetly sleeping, prophecies of ages keeping. Yet no one to give him greeting, coming in the flesh to die.